Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me uh, to the book of Mark, chapter 8. The book of Mark, chapter 8. We will uh, begin our time reading this morning uh, from the last paragraph of uh, Ray's sermon from last week in Mark, chapter 8, verse 14. Oh yeah, if you, are, uh, if you are with the threes and fours class uh, and you've been worshiping with us, thank you for worshiping with us, but you can exit to your class now. Miss Nicole's in the back and she'll uh, welcome you and take you to your class now. Are there any threes and fours here? about forgot that. Thankful for my wife. So if you missed last week, Jesus has just performed... Uh, another crazy miracle. It's just kind of like one right after another throughout the Gospel of Mark. Uh, but he has just performed for the second time a feeding, a miraculous feeding of thousands of people who had come out to see him and to hear him teach. Earlier in Mark, he fed 5,000 Jews with miracle bread from heaven. And here in Mark chapter 8, Jesus feeds 4,000 Gentiles with miracle bread from heaven. But as the disciples leave that event where Jesus has just called down an, a miraculous fast food event, they, as they leave that event, forget to bring bread along with them for the journey, and they begin to worry because they don't have food to eat while Jesus is in the boat with them. It's a comical scene in the scriptures, and as Ray pointed out last week, it shows uh, how quickly the human heart can forget the faithfulness of God. But as I read the paragraph again from last week, I just want you to note or to make note of how many times you see words that signify sight or understanding. Because what Mark is doing is he is introducing a theme that will run uh, for several chapters in the Gospel of Mark. And I want to see how the, last week's passage connects to this week's passage and how that will connect really for the next three chapters of Mark. So look with me at verse 14 from last week and follow along listening for the words for understanding and seeing. Now they'd forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat and he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not Remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. You got to think that's sort of like a shameful, like 12. <laughs> and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? 
So that's last week's passage. Now on to this week's, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man. Again, notice the seeing language. A blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man and uh, took him by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. (laughs) But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. All right, let's, let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we come to you and we pray that you would help us to see. Help us to see more clearly when we leave this place than when we came into this place. And we ask this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the benefits of working through a book of the Bible uh, sequentially like this, where you're taking verse after verse, chapter after chapter, is that you begin to learn how the author makes theological points. You begin to learn devices that he uses and ways that he's trying to get across to his reader particular messages. I mean, Mark has an intention. Remember, Mark's writing this uh, to a particular group of people in the Roman Empire who are trying to follow Christ in a context where they're receiving persecution as they follow Jesus. And so Mark's just, he's not just telling the story of Jesus, he's telling the story and he's trying to press the story into the hearts of the people that they might be changed by the story, encouraged by the story, to persevere as they follow Jesus. And so as we work through the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that we've noticed and we've recognized about Mark is he uses this literary device Uh, that I've called sandwiching. Now, what I mean by sandwiching is he will uh, tell one story, and then he'll tell a different kind of story, and then he'll come back and tell a similar story to the first story. So think A, B, A. So he, he tells in this sort of like structure to where the outside pieces are very similar to, to one another, and the inside piece is the point he's trying to make with the whole picture. 
Okay, and so we've seen this several times. In fact, the entire gospel of Mark is one giant sandwich. At the very beginning, uh, God himself declares with the heavens are torn that Jesus is the Son of God. At the very end of the story, the veil is torn in two. Uh, Use the same word, and the Roman centurion declares, surely this must be the Son of God. So what's the whole gospel of Mark about? What's all the middle pieces about that this is the Son of God? So you can see the sandwich working even in the entire book. But in this case, this morning, um, we begin to uh, eat a very big sandwich in the middle of Mark's gospel that spans all the way from Mark chapter 8, verse 22, to Mark chapter 10, verse 52. And in this case, we have the theme of spiritual blindness. The sandwich begins with a story about a physically blind man receiving his sight, and then all the way in chapter 10, it ends with another story of a physically blind man receiving his sight. But in the middle are three occasions where Jesus, with crystal clarity, says, this is what I came to do. And on three occasions, the disciples ignore him, don't get it, and Jesus has to rebuke them. So I, uh, uh, before we dive into the weeds, I made a chart for you to, you can see this. It's pretty small letters. That's not going to work. So I'm going to have to describe this. See, I even made it look like a sandwich. See, the outside pieces are the bread, then you got the lettuce, tomato, and the the meat there, but you can't really appreciate it because it's not quite as big enough. So, So you've got the white pieces outside, Jesus heals a blind man. And then three times, okay, Jesus clearly teaches his message, disciples don't get it, Jesus corrects them. Teaches his message, don't get it, corrects them. Teaches his message, don't get it, corrects them. Jesus heals another blind man. And so that's the big picture of the sandwich that we are going to work our way through uh, over the next uh, several weeks or uh, months, uh, depending on how fast you guys can eat. So Mark, just from the structure, you recognize that Mark is drawing a parallel between physical blindness that Jesus came to heal and spiritual blindness that Jesus came to heal. And so with those things in mind, um, let's, let's, that, let's dive into this specific story um, as we begin to see what Mark's unfolding for us. So look at verse 22 with me again. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now, everything in this event seems pretty typical of what we've seen of Jesus thus far. I mean, Jesus comes to Bethsaida. Friends of the blind man hear that Jesus is in town. They want their friend to be healed, so they track Jesus down. They plead with Jesus to heal them. And the first thing I want you to note in this, uh, these couple of verses is just that word begged. Because I don't, I don't want us to read too quickly and think through structure and think through all the things that Mark's doing with telling the story and, and, and forget that there's a real man here that's really living in the first century without the ability to see. They begged him. And the word begged signifies a degree of desperation Uh, that the condition of blindness really brings about in a person. Uh, It it, it signifies the condition of neediness, not in a bad sense, 
uh, but in the sense that, that a blind person uh, literally cannot survive or exist, even in the 21st century, apart from the help of some sort of outside person. There's a need here. Blindness is certainly one of the most difficult products of the curse of sin in our fallen world. When you think about the way God made our world, God made our world to be lived in and enjoyed and processed and learned through sight. And in the beginning, God declares with the word of his mouth, let there be light. And then that same light that shoots out of the mouth of the Father then bounces off his created world and he enters into his creature's eyes, which illuminates their brains to see and enjoy what is all around them. Light through our eyes helps us to know what's in front of us, what's around us, where we should be going. It helps us to enjoy beauty without light and our ability to process that light, we would be in utter darkness. And in utter darkness, we would have great difficulty. And in darkness, for a blind person in the first century, without someone to, to guide him or be along his side, in darkness we are in danger. And we cannot protect ourselves from those who would do us harm. In darkness we are lost, unable to navigate, unable to avoid stumbling stones, unable to avoid obstacles along the way, and really not even sure which way we should be walking. In darkness, we are unable to work to provide for our needs. This especially would have been true in the first century. In darkness, we are deprived of much of creation's beauty, things we take for granted every day. Every day, sunrises and sunsets and uh, the way light glistens off of rain, uh, it, it, those are things that we would not experience. And you can see why Mark would link the concept of physical blindness to spiritual blindness. And this leads me to our, our first truth this morning, is this, that apart from Jesus, we walk in spiritual blindness. I mean, in darkness, apart from Jesus, the light of the world, we cannot protect ourselves from those who would do us harm. We cannot protect ourselves from the lies of our world, the false teachers of our world, the people wanting to take advantage of us. In darkness, we're lost. We don't know what direction we should be walking in, for what purpose we should be striving. We live aimlessly, and we trip over every obstacle along the way. In darkness, we're unable to provide for our greatest needs. In darkness, we are deprived of our Creator's beauty and the glory of walking with Jesus, a relationship with Him. I mean, perhaps even now you feel um, as if you are fumbling through life down a dark path, sort of stubbing your toe every few steps. You're not even sure if you're actually walking in the right direction, like with your life. And so just like the physically blind person, it doesn't matter what we do, it doesn't matter how hard we try to open our eyes, we can't see apart from light. We can't see apart from the light outside of us entering into us and giving us direction and a sense of beauty and glory and worth and honor and purpose. And that light, Jesus says, 
is him. <laughs> this is why Jesus comes into the world and he says, I'm the light of the world. I mean, no one can come to the destination. No one com- can come to the Father except through me. I'm what makes life make sense. I mean, I'm what delivers you from fumbling around in the darkness until the day you die. And so when we come to Christ, when we become Christians, this is why we in this room can sing songs like, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. So this man was in darkness, pleading with Jesus to open his eyes to the light. And Jesus hears their plea. Uh, Text says that Jesus literally took the man by the hand and Jesus led him. That's a beautiful picture. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine Jesus with this man who he's just met? They're in the hustle and bustle of the market and the crowd, people pressing in him. And, and the man, uh, unable to see, feels a hand, grasps his hand, and starts to lead him out of all the craziness of the village so Jesus can get alone with him and do this healing miracle, uh, giving him sight. So he's sort of fumbling around not seeing, but he's grasping the hand of this person in hopes that the light would shine through. So Jesus heals the man. And then Jesus asked a simple question. Do you see anything? Now, everything thus far in the story has been pretty usual Jesus behavior. Every, I mean, the spitting's a little strange. Um, Stephen talked about that a couple weeks ago. Uh, but beyond the spitting, the, the, it, it's been pretty, pretty usual. It's not been unusual in the Gospel of Mark for Jesus to take particular interest in someone, to pull them off to the side, and to, to heal their, uh, their ailment. But this is where the story gets strange. For what I've seen of Jesus, uh, for what we've seen of Jesus thus far, when Jesus lays his hands on this man, you expect the man to see to celebrate and then to go tell everybody while Jesus is saying, well, don't tell everybody yet. Like, don't cause a big scene yet. But something different happens here. Look at verse 24. The man looks up, or Jesus, uh, the man looks up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Well, and then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Now, the weird thing about this story is that Jesus' first touch does not fully restore the man's sight. I mean, do you find that weird? When you're reading your Bible, that should be weird to you. I mean, thus far, I mean, don't get me wrong, like healing a, a man that can see nothing to then having poor eyesight is a crazy miracle, right? I mean, I mean, to not be able to see anything to then being able to walk and move your way around and and do things but like need a really strong prescription you know (laughs) like like, that's a miracle like that's awesome I mean like praise the Lord to go from complete darkness to having poor eyesight is awesome you can recognize shapes and colors and maybe even people but poor eyesight still doesn't seem like Jesus level healing right I mean 
Jesus asks the man, what do you see? And the man says, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. So he's seeing, but he's only seeing a blurry, sort of impartial image until Jesus touches him a second time. And then it says that he saw everything clearly. Now, thus far in the story, Jesus has just healed people. Jesus has healed people with the word of his mouth. Jesus has raised people from the dead with the word of his mouth and not even being in the same room with them. I mean, thus far in the story, Jesus has, with a word, sent thousands of demons running. Jesus has, with a word, calmed the storm, peace, and the whole storm stops. And you're reading the story, and you're like, did Jesus, like, have a mistake here? Did Jesus, like, heal the guy? And then he's like, well, I kind of just see some trees here. And Jesus is like, oh, not enough spit. He's like, <laughs> he like does it again, you know. <laughs> is this a mistake on Jesus' part or a lapse in power? Or like, man, I just wasn't concentrated enough to really just mm, get all my miracle working juices flowing. Let me just do that again real quick. This man's vision of Jesus starts out as cloudy and distorted. But as Jesus continues to work with the man, it transitions into a clearer picture. His vision was progressive. It grew in clarity as he had more interactions with Jesus. And I think this progression into clarity serves as a live parable of what is going to happen to the spiritual sight of Jesus' disciples. I think that Jesus is doing this on purpose because he's making a point uh, to what it's going to take for these disciples to see Jesus clearly. I think this is the connection that Mark's going to make, and this is truth number two. That following Jesus will mean an ongoing recovery of spiritual sight. When Jesus came to his disciples earlier in Mark, he called them with authority and he said, follow me. And his disciples followed him. I mean, they knew Jesus was different. They knew he was a miracle worker. They knew he had great authority. They knew he was worth following. They thought that he might be the promised one from the Old Testament. But there's so much that they did not yet know. So the blind man here received the fullness of sight in stages as a living example of the progressive clarity that his disciples were going to experience. And we actually get to watch that play out in the following passage. Because what you're going to see in the very next passage is the disciples kind of getting it, like seeing blurrily, but not quite getting it all the way yet. So, so look at uh, uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Now, this is the climactic, this is a climactic moment in the gospel of Mark. In fact, we'll touch on it a little bit more again next week. Um, this is the first time where one of Jesus' own disciples verbally affirm who Jesus really was. Okay, so this is, this is big, like they're... They're starting to get it. This, this is big. Mark 8, 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? That's an easy question. Who do other people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. Um, so, so obviously Jesus is the talk of the town in every town that they go into now. And Jesus asked his disciples, you know, what are all the people saying about me? Who do they think that I am? And so uh, the disciples, all, uh, it sort of seems like all of them kind of chime in here, and they're like, well, I mean, some people are saying that you're John the Baptist. I mean, John the Baptist was kind of an oddball himself. 
He walked around and preached sermons and did some cool stuff and preached about repentance. So they're thinking that maybe you're like John the Baptist, come back from the dead, or you're just like a copycat of John the Baptist. Others are saying that you're Elijah. Elijah's that crazy prophet in the Old Testament, you know, that like um, uh, God used mightily, and they're like, you kind of seem like him in a lot of ways, so maybe you're Elijah who's come back. So the disciples sort of just give this summarized version of what all the people are saying about who Jesus might be. But then Jesus asks a much more difficult question. Verse 29, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, I love the pivot in the conversation. Jesus turns away from all the noise of the world. I mean, it's like he looks right into the souls of his followers, and he asks point blank, blank. no, you've got to make a decision. You have to come to terms with who I am, what I'm doing in the world. It's not what your mama thinks or your grandmother thinks or the people down the street thinks. No, who do you say that Jesus is? doesn't matter how many Jesus-y things you've done or how close you've been to other Jesus followers. There comes a point where you've got to answer the question for yourself. Is Jesus just a historical cultural phenomenon that somehow has lasted 2,000 years? Is he a liar who fooled a bunch of people? Or is he a, a, a lunatic who fooled himself into thinking that he was God? Is he just a moral teacher that helps me to live a better American dream? Or is he really the creator of the world who stepped into creation to live and die and rise again for me? And this is where the rubber meets the road. And, and, and you can't read the, that text without pausing and sitting and a, examining yourself, right? You can't read this text and, without stopping and saying, okay, if Jesus was sitting here and he looked at Andreas and he said, Andreas, no, who do you say that I am? You can't, you can't read this text without pausing and saying, what would I genuinely and truthfully answer? to that question. And you can, you can almost feel the tension um, as perhaps Jesus' disciples, you know, you can kind of picture in your mind all of them sort of looking at one another, hoping someone else will answer. <laughs> you know, hopefully somebody else will put themselves out there <laughs> uh, and answer this question. And uh, luckily for them, Peter uh, designates himself as the spokesman, as he often does. Uh, and, and Peter says... You are the Christ. That's the right answer. This is a big moment. They're getting it. I mean, uh, uh, Mark doesn't quite show us how much of a right answer this was, but like in Mark chapter uh, sixteen or Matthew chapter sixteen, verse sixteen, uh, the same story is told, and Jesus responds to Peter and says, "Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven." Peter, you got it right by the grace of God, is what Jesus says. <laughs> You actually didn't come up with that answer. God gave you that answer. That was the right answer. Christ was the official title for the Savior who was to come. Peter hit the nail on the head. But Peter did not yet understand exactly what that would mean. 
See, Peter knew the stories of the Old Testament. He knew that there was a promised king coming. He knew that God was going to destroy his enemies. He knew that there was going to be a new world uh, established, that, that, that God was going to renew all the things that were old. But Peter, in his mind, he thought that the way that Jesus was going to do that, that he was going to land on planet Earth and start whooping some tail. Like Peter thought that Jesus was going to land on earth and he was going to start, that he was going to, to lead them in a victorious, like military victory over the Roman Empire and every other empire that stood opposed to God. And so when, Jesus, when, when Peter says, you are the Christ, he's got the title right. And he's got the right man, but he doesn't really quite have it right. And so Jesus begins to clarify for Peter and for the disciples. Look at verse 30. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, that's all, all, throughout Mark, you're seeing that over and over again. Like, don't tell anybody yet. Part of the reason is because you guys don't get it yet. Like, don't start spreading, <laughs> don't start spreading that I'm out of Christ when you don't even really know what that's going to mean uh, for you and for the world. And then he clarifies. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, now this is first of three times where Jesus is going to say, this is why I came. Now, that's the sandwich we're talking about. Those are the, the, the lettuce and tomato and meat. So three times, right? So, so Mark chapter 9, verse 31, same thing. Jesus is teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Again, in chapter 10, verse 33, uh, uh, a little more detail. We're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief of priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus is much like a parent here. You have to repeat yourself a lot as a parent. He's repeating over and over again, this is the plan. In fact, Jesus says more specifically, this must be the plan. Let me look at verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Listen, Jesus came with the purpose to suffer and die in your place. He came to die for the sins of humanity, to take the guilt and the punishment and the shame and the death upon himself in place of sinners like you and me. There is no other way to be saved. And that's not the end of the story. Because he would die for us, then on the third day, he would beat what we never could beat. He would rise again from the grave. Everything in all of history was leading to this moment where Jesus would present himself as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of humanity. In fact, everything from this point in Mark, everything from this point geographically is moving toward the cross. Like, this is the moment where it shifts. I mean, Jesus has been kind of like on the outskirts uh, around Jerusalem, around Judea, been doing different things. Let's go across the lake here. Let's, let's go into the wilderness here. Now, every time they move geographically, they're moving toward Jerusalem and toward the cross. 
Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. But Jesus knows that's only a partial explanation. You don't understand Jesus until you understand that he came to die for you and rise again. And that you needed him desperately to do that. Now, Peter, at this point in the game, doesn't see how Jesus' suffering could be of any benefit to anybody. <laughs> in fact, Jesus is, uh, uh, Peter is frustrated with Jesus' pronounced plan here. Now, I love this interaction. Look at verse 32. And I love how Mark <laughs> says it. Uh, and Jesus said this plainly. All right, period. I love how Mark just adds that in there. there there's no question here. <laughs> of what Jesus is communicating to his disciples. Jesus said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, so, so, so Peter's rebuking Jesus. Jesus is experiencing rebuke from Peter. Jesus looks over his disciples, sees all the disciples watching, like, oh my goodness, Peter's rebuking Jesus. And then Jesus, recognizing, I need to respond to this with the proper force. Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter takes Jesus aside to rebuke Jesus for Jesus' misunderstanding of Jesus' mission as the Messiah. The fisherman takes aside the guy who walks on the water to explain to him a better plan that Peter has worked out already. <laughs> now, it's a comical scene, but unfortunately, it's a familiar one to us. We all struggle with the Peter syndrome here. We all set our minds on the things of man rather than the things of God, and we try to help God set the God agenda for our life. We all try to explain to God the best course of action rather than listening to the word that he has revealed for us. The text says Jesus spoke plainly. There was no reason to misunderstand Jesus just didn't like what was said, or Peter didn't like what was said. And Peter may have really good intentions here, but you can have really good intentions and make really stupid decisions. <laughs> I mean, Peter wants what's best. He wants what he thinks is going to expand the kingdom the most. I mean, the kingdom expansion doesn't work when the king's dead, Jesus, Right? So let's, let's work another plan here. And Jesus wants to emphasize just how wrong Peter was. And so Jesus chooses to uh, turn to Peter and say, Satan, <laughs> get behind me. Now, if there's anything that I don't want Jesus to call me, uh, it would be Satan, right? <laughs> I mean, there's lots of things I don't want Jesus to call me, but Satan's definitely top. Like, number one, I don't want... The, the Savior of the world to turn and call me the biggest enemy to the plan of God. 
Just pause and think. Peter thought he saw clearly. What if Peter could have somehow had his way? Now, there was no way he could have his way. But what if Peter could somehow have his way? What if Peter, by all of his might, swept in at the last minute, fought off the Roman soldiers, kept Jesus from dying on the cross, there was no cross, there was no death? Where does that leave you and me? Lost and in our sins forever and ever and ever. I'm very glad that Peter's very good idea (laughs) was not taken as a good suggestion. What Peter needed to do was stop, recognize how much he didn't actually know, and listen and seek miracle clarity of spiritual sight. Truth number one was this, apart from Jesus, we are spiritually blind. Truth number two, following Jesus will mean ongoing recovery of spiritual sight. Now, as the disciples walk with Jesus, obviously, they're going to grow. As they walk with Jesus, receive teaching from Jesus, uh, they're going to begin to learn Jesus rightly. But the question I want to ask here at the end of the sermon is, is their experience to be understood as parallel with our own experience? I mean, do we progressively grow to know Jesus and his message as we come in contact with Jesus, spiritually follow Jesus in the same way that this living parable seems to indicate? Is there anywhere else in the Bible that would affirm that this blind man who sort of sees in a blurry way but then increases in clarity, is there anywhere else in Scripture that says, you know, following Jesus actually is a lot like this? And if that is the case, why would it matter for us in the room? Well, we know that salvation involves a sort of spiritual seeing for the first time, right? I mean, this is what salvation is. I mean, Jesus says you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So so you become new. You see things differently. You experience things differently. You think differently. The moment of salvation brings light, right? I mean, you can't be saved unless you see your sin for what it really is and see Jesus for who he really is and you trust him to be your savior. But there's another sense in which God's revelation to us is a journey, We come to salvation when we put faith in Jesus for the first time, but then our faith does grow in clarity. When we get saved, we see for the first time, but there's a very real sense in which we see things like trees walking around. We see for the first time, and it's amazing, and we can walk and live in ways we never could ever before. But there's another sense in which things are still blurry and need increased clarity. Consider Paul's words in 2 Corinthians as he describes what happens to us when we put faith in Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 3.16, he says, When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. So when you turn to Jesus, man, there's a seeing, and there's a freedom that you experience in, in Jesus, and now that you can walk and see and play and jump with your Lord, and it's wonderful. And then in verse 18, he says, And we all, with unveiled faces beholding the glory of God, so ongoing, we we keep beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who's the Spirit. So yes, salvation's a removing of the veil, and you can see and run and jump and do that thing, but it's the beginning of a journey where you're going to increase in clarity for the rest of your lives. 
where you're going to know more of Jesus and more of God and more of what he's doing in the world and more of what that means for your life specifically for the rest of your lives. It's a progression. It's a progression that Paul prays for in Ephesians 1 that we prayed for just a few moments ago. Paul's praying for Christians in Ephesians chapter 1 and he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. I mean, do, do you see what he's praying for? That your eyes of your heart would be enlightened to know more of God? More of the hope that you've been promised. More of the power which God has given you through Jesus. More of what it means that Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and sits at the right hand of the Heavenly Father right now interceding for you. Every Christian is on a journey with Jesus where they're growing in their ability to see clearly. And every Christian should be seeing Jesus and his word and his church and his world and his mission more clearly than when they first began. And we do this until one day where our sight really will be perfect. Right? I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Or put another way, right now we see, but it's like people, they're like trees walking. But one day we'll see Clearly, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. Like John says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So why does that concept of salvation and sanctification. Why, why does that concept matter for us today, this morning, this week? Uh, let me leave you with a, with a few takeaways. These aren't the only ones that you could take away, uh, but here's a few that just came to my mind as I got done with this sermon. Number one is this. Beware of your blind spots. Listen, Peter was face to face with Jesus. Peter heard Jesus declare his plan to die and rise again. But Peter focused so much on his own desires that he missed what Jesus was saying altogether. Don't be like Peter. <laughs> it doesn't matter how old you are in this room. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how holy you think you are. You have blind spots in your life. I just promise you, you have blind spots in your life. You have aspects of your life that you need some sort of Christian brother or sister or some exposure to the Scriptures to come in and speak truth into that particular blind spot. You have areas in your life that need the gentle correction of a good Christian friend or a teacher who will apply the truth of God's Word to your life. Beware of living as if you don't have any. Number two, embrace a posture of dependence on Jesus, the light of the world. Embrace a posture of dependence on Jesus, 
the light of the world. We can only see as much as God reveals to us through Jesus. So we need him every day to take us by the hand and lead us into the way of everlasting. Humility is the doorway into deeper communion with Jesus. Many people, many people, I'm sure in this room, will stunt their Christian growth, will not grow in any deeper knowledge of the Bible, any deeper knowledge of God, any deeper knowledge of what God may want to do with their life, and the thing that will keep them from growing is simply pride. They just think they've got nothing else to learn, nothing else to see, nothing else to learn from anyone younger than them, nothing else to learn from any other Christian. I've been there, done that, been to the Bible studies. I don't need to go to any more of them. Uh, I am content to live this way. And the thing that keeps them from addressing those blind spots or growing, it's pride. And takeaway number three, seek Jesus like there's still more to see. Seek Jesus like there's still more to see. None of us in here know all that there is to know of God. None of us in here know all that there is to know of God's Word. I mean, we are called to be a learner because we are creatures, we are finite, and we have relationship with the Creator who is infinite. (laughs) That's why Paul prays that you'd know the immeasurable power uh, that works in you. Like, Like you would know the God that you don't have metrics to measure. So there's more to see of God. All of us are called to be learners for the rest of our lives, and I think on into eternity, that we'll never get bored in all of eternity, that though we will see him clearly face to face 10 millennium from now, that we will not be bored because we've seen it all. That, that, that we, will, we will still have this hunger that we should have right now. And one of the most impactful verses in the Bible for me as I was studying years ago, studying in Exodus, is when Moses has literally seen God deliver the Israelites from Pharaoh, work unbelievable miracles, lead them through the Red Sea with waters parted on each side, fed them with miracle bread from heaven. I mean, Moses has seen God do way more than I've seen in my life. And at the end of it all, in Exodus chapter 33, as they're preparing to go into the promised land, Moses prays this prayer to God, please show me your glory. And I'm like, Moses, (laughs) you arrogant jerk, you've seen so much. (laughs) How could you think, why would you demand more? Because even Moses understood that there was more to see and that it was pleasing to God for us to long to see it and to long to know him in deeper ways than we've previously known him. So as we um, enter into 2022 and, I mean, we've got Bible reading plans and small group Bible studies and all kinds of things at the church and everyone's kind of making resolutions or trying to build habits. Man, would this be your prayer for this year? Please show me your glory, because there's more to see. So let's pray.
Lord, we love you. And we do pray uh, that you would help us to have a spirit of humility. Uh, I pray, I mean, just for me specifically in this moment, for the whole congregation to see, God, would you please help me um, to have this spirit of humility and the spirit of longing to see more of your glory. I can feel it even in myself. Uh, as a younger pastor, there's all this uh, zeal and, and uh, sort of crazy optimism of what you could do in this community and what you could do in my life. And there was just sort of like God could do anything at any moment. And, and there was a hunger. And, and I can see how ready, already I could see how life can, can beat that out of you. I pray, God, that you would help me personally not to lose a hunger and a thirst for more of God and to understand more clearly what it is that Jesus did for me and what it means for the world and what it means for this church and my life. And so, God, I pray for that same uh, posture. Uh, I pray that that would sweep through our little congregation here in St. Rose that you would make us to be a people who recognize our own spiritual blindness and recognize where we can find healing from it as we draw nearer to you every day. We, we love you and we pray help us to respond now uh, through prayer and song. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and respond and song together.